Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and I'll be reading the entire chapter. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and when one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's Word. Please be seated. Well, good morning again. My name is Damien. It's good to see everybody. We do, in fact, come to a close in this eight week series in Ecclesiastes. Uh, We've come to the end, not just of a book, but of a journey. If you were with us all along, The writer to the Ecclesiastes, the teacher, has invited us on this journey, a journey of finding meaning. And here, in this last week, we're going to reflect on how to find lasting meaning. He's taken us with him on the search for meaning in life, exploring wisdom and pleasure and riches and work and achievements. All of these, he says, are good gifts from God that should be enjoyed, but they all vaporize when they're clung to as ultimate meaning. And that's what he says, that all life is vanity or breath. The Hebrew word is hevel. So it's like smoke. It's a good gift, these things, but when you try to grasp them and hold on to them and save them for later to find lasting meaning, they vaporize. And he showed us this in a number of ways over the past two months. So today we come to the end of the book And he starts chapter 12, if you look in your worship guide here on the back, you'll see the text. He starts with this phrase, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Now, this is the most important phrase to shape and frame the way we read not only chapter 12, but also the whole Bible. 
and particularly the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I need to say, to remember in the Bible is a thicker word. It carries a thicker meaning than we tend to think of. We tend to think of remembering something in merely sort of neutrally calling it to mind. Maybe it's something that we've forgotten. But in the scriptures, to remember something can be spoken of to remember present things. Yes, past things, but also the Bible speaks of remembering future things. So right there you see that the Bible's use of the word remember is already more complex or more nuanced than the way we do. We oftentimes don't use the word remember to say, I'm going to remember future things, or I remember future things, saying it in present tense. So Colossians 4, Paul talks about, remember, I am in chains. And he puts it in the present tense, verb. So it's something that we are to grab onto and hold before our mind's eye. In the Bible, what you remember actually forms your identity. Because what you contemplate shapes who you are. So in the Bible, to remember is not because you forgot, right? After all, even God remembers. The Bible speaks of God remembering. And of course, God hasn't forgotten anything. God remembers his covenant. God remembers his steadfast love and his mercy. And in the covenant, when God remembers that, he's establishing an identity. He's telling us who he is, and then he's faithful to it. He's determining a cause, and he acts in accordance with with it. And so in order to understand why this phrase, remember your creator, is so important, we have to understand that the word remember is a very thick word in the Bible. Remembrance is not simply calling back to mind, but to remember something is to grab onto it, to put it in your mind's eye, to contemplate it over and over. And contemplation works in such a way that whatever is contemplated over time, me as the one who is contemplating, becomes like what I am contemplating. I am shaped by what I contemplate on. And if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we often fail to remember in this sense our creator. Do you? Do you fail to remember your creator? One of the things I love about the book of Ecclesiastes is that he repeats himself constantly. And the, re- the, reason, he re- uh, the reason he repeats himself constantly is because we need him to do that. We need him to repeat himself so that we, week in and week out, can again confess that we have forgotten. So moment by moment we forget, and week by week we forget. And the writer, the teacher in Ecclesiastes does not assume that we have learned our lesson yet. And so in chapter 12, he simply summarizes the rest of the book, and he starts with this overarching summary, which is, remember your creator. And so what I want to do today is I just want to give us three reasons why we should remember our creator from chapter 12. He gives us three reasons why we should remember our creator. And the first reason is because when we remember our creator, we will find preparation for death. Now in verses one through eight, it's very poetic, but it's a poetic way of talking about death. I'll mention just a few things. In verse 2, he says, Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. He's talking about a coming storm, right? We are expecting a coming storm and increased winds today and a flood watch, right? We know these things are coming. 
even though there was a break in the rain on the way here. And so he's telling us, we know there is a storm coming. And he's relating death to a storm. And he says, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the the strong men are bent, right? There's a day when you won't be as strong as you are now. There's a day when time will bring weariness and a bentness. And he says, and the grinders cease because they are few. These are your teeth, right? When you get old, your teeth are going to fall out. That's what he's saying. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. Your eyes, the, the windows of your, of your life are going to grow dim, he's saying. And the doors on the street are, are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. Here he's talking about your hearing. Your hearing is going. For some people, as they get older, their hearing gets worse. For some, it gets too sensitive. So for some, they can't hear anything. And for some, their, their hearing is so sensitive, uh, the mere chirping of a bird wakes them from sleep and they can't go back to sleep. And all the daughters of the song are brought low. If you look down, uh, he talks about when the almond tree blossoms. This is probably the graying of hair. Uh, the grasshopper drags itself along. Just imagine a grasshopper in its spryness. You're used to seeing it hopping and hopping and hopping. But yet, imagine watching a grasshopper barely creep along. He's saying, this will happen to us. And then last in verse 6, six through 8, he talks about uh, before the silver cord is snapped. Of course, this would be... Uh, death, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and dust returns to the earth as it was. And so here, he's telling us, in all of these images, we have a gift. We can actually prepare for death when we remember our Creator, because after all, we did not make ourselves, and we will return to the dust by which our Creator fashioned us, is what he's saying. And so when you think about it, he's preparing us for death. I, I remember a dream that I had, and, and I've had many of these types of dreams in my life, and I know you've had them too. It's the dream when, when you weren't prepared for something, right? It could be an exam. You could walk in, and, and in the dream, you might be sitting down, and everyone else is ready with their pencil, and you're trying to figure out why they look so nervous. And then the professor or the teacher comes around and starts handing out an exam that you had no idea about. Or in college, I used to dream that I would get my report card back, and I would have a, I would have a class that I didn't even know that I was signed up for, and it said F. And I never went because I didn't know. Or I've had dreams where I've gotten up to preach on Sunday morning, and, or actually I've come to church on Sunday morning and I was supposed to preach and I didn't know. And I, and I got up here, I didn't even know what the passage was and I was completely unprepared. And, and, you know, as I speak, everyone's looking at each other thinking, this dude is not prepared, right? We, we've had these types of dreams of what it's like to not be prepared. But then what happens? We wake up and relief, Whew, there's still time. There's still time to prepare. I didn't miss it. I didn't miss it. Well, that's actually why he's closing the book this way. He's saying there's time to prepare. There's time to prepare for your death. The teacher's saying that a day is coming when some people will discover they were not ready for the most important event in their world, and it won't be a dream. Their life has been one long exercise in avoiding reality, ignoring what is coming toward them. Death and judgment are coming which is why he ends the book the way he does. And the words of the preacher are meant to be like the hand on the shoulder that rudely shakes you from your slumber, bringing you back to consciousness and giving you the opportunity to be prepared. Now, keeping with the style of the sage, the purpose of his speaking of death is always about shaping our life. 
The, the whole time he's been telling us to think of our death so that it will change the way we live, which is why he says, in the days of your youth. He's not speaking of young people only, right? Because we know that even though if you're young, you're not promised a long life. So his point is, is that youth in this context is being alive. If you're alive, you have time to prepare. If you're alive, you can change. And he says the way you'll change is to remember your creator, to contemplate your creator. And so particularly, we see that in order to live a wise life, one person will remember their creator and prepare for their death. And that leads us to the second reason that we need to remember our creator. The first being, it will prepare us for death, which leads to the second reason, because you will find the prodding of the wise shepherd. Okay, let's look with me in verse, uh, verse 11. Right? The, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Nails firmly fixed. The point there is to communicate a picture of the stability and trustworthiness of these sayings. In verses 9 and 10, for example, we get a biographical sketch of the author, right? He's trustworthy. He has knowledge. He's weighed this. He's studied this. He's been thoughtful in arranging many proverbs with great care. And he has sought, not to show us how smart he is, but he he sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. And because of this, the, the writer says now that these are like nails firmly fixed. Think about the studs in, this, in the wall of this room. We don't walk in thinking that the walls will just collapse. Why? Because they're fastened by nails that are firmly fixed. So his point is that these sayings can be trusted. Weight can be put into these sayings without them collapsing. And then he gives this, this picture of a goad. You know what a goad is? Uh, goads were employed by herd drivers in the ancient world to keep animals on a straight path. So they were staves with sharp nails embedded in them and they were used to poke and to prod the animal. So if the animal went left, there would be pain. It would come back straight. If the animal went to the right, there would be pain. And so it would come back straight. If the animal stopped and said, I'm not going any further, there would be pain and the animal would keep walking. So the only way the animal could avoid pain was to go the way the shepherd wanted it to go. And some of the teacher's words here may have come to you as painful as we've reflected on them in the last eight weeks. It may have felt like a sharp tip prodding you, right? But the good thing the writer tells us, the teacher tells us, is that more than words of saying that are trustworthy, more than many would say Solomon in his writings, in his reflection, giving us both Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. We see that really the words come from one shepherd. Who is the one shepherd? If you notice, the word shepherd is capitalized. What's happening here is we're learning that all of these words that are prodding us and keeping us are not ultimately from Solomon. They're ultimately from the shepherd, from the Lord. Psalm 80 verse 1 says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Speaking of God. And of course, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And then of course, John 10.10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd who lays down his life 
for his sheep. And so you see the words come from God. Some of the words from the shepherd make you sit up and take notice. Some words make you stop in your tracks. They turn you around and they get you going in the right directions. Some words from the shepherd will humble you and you'll weep as you think of the arrogance with which you've lived your life thus far. Some of the words will encourage you when you're in the depths of despair. Some of the words of the shepherd will sober you in your quest for a life that's built on sand. Now, before we're sad or frustrated about a goading shepherd, let's just imagine the other side. What if when you came to the Bible, what you read always agreed with you? What would that be like? I mean, at first you may think, oh, that would be a good thing. Or you may mistakenly think, I must be getting more godly. Probably not. A little bit. But you know what happens if you come to the Bible and it only confirms what you think? It only confirms every desire you have? What you'll discover is that you're not coming to the Bible to see God. You're coming to the Bible as God. Right? You've become God if nothing you find in the scriptures goads you. If nothing you find make you turn back to the left or to the right or to keep moving. Or if they don't humble you or encourage you. If you come to the scriptures and you can't be encouraged, then you have become your God. Right? We remember our creator by letting his word dispel our illusions and confront our folly, even when it hurts, especially when it often hurts, right? Left to my own devices, I will not choose what is right. Left to wander along by myself, I will end up going the opposite direction that I should go. And here's a good test to see where you are in relation to the shepherd's words in your life. One, do you find his word a delight? If you come to the Bible and you think, now I've read this before, you don't find his word a delight. If you come here on Sunday morning to hear God's word preached and to sing it and to pray it or daily in your personal reading or whenever you're reflecting on God's word, if you come and there's no delight, that's not a good thing. When was the last time you submitted to God's word and acted on it in certain ways, even when you did not like it? Have you ever obeyed even when things the Bible said, the words of the shepherd said, were offensive to you? Right? Reinterpreting the Bible to mean something different is always a moral choice before it's ever an intellectual choice. This is what I mean. If we don't like what the Bible says because it confronts us, then we'll always find some way of changing what it means so it lines with the world we want to live instead. But to find the prodding of the wise shepherd, that happens when you remember your creator and you remember that the words given to you by your creator are a good gift to shape your life. And so we need the prodding of the shepherd toward a wise and flourishing life. So first we see, first reason to remember your creator is because you will find preparation for death. Second, because you will find the prodding of the wise shepherd. And the third reason to remember your creator is because you will find peace. 
Look in verse 13 and 14. Here's the end of the matter. This is what he's been driving toward. Now, he didn't short circuit this journey. Otherwise, verse 13 and 14 wouldn't seem like good news. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. This word whole is obviously a comprehensive word, right? It's, it's your entire life, the totality of your life. And we don't tend to think this way most often. We tend to think that there are certain areas in our lives that God really cares about, and there are certain areas of our lives that he only kind of cares about, right? Those areas are the ones that aren't as spiritual, we might think. But that's not what the writer says. He says, fear God and keep his commandments is the whole duty of man, right? The preacher reminds us that every single duty or responsibility we have toward anyone or anything else, we have toward God first and foremost, right? Why do you need to be a certain kind of employee? It's because you have to fear God and keep his commandments. Why do you have to be a certain kind of child obeying your parents? It's because you fear God and know that he wants you to honor your parents. Everything I do, right? I must do first because it's for God. That's the kind of person Ecclesiastes is teaching me I ought to be. Perhaps if we were to think of doing everything for God first and foremost, it would change what we do for one another, right? It might make us bolder in what we say. Maybe sometimes the reason you're not bold is because you're first concerned about what other people think about you instead of first what God has called you to do and to be and to say. So some of you will become bolder. Some of you will become gentler because what you actually say is out of anger and frustration at the other person first, not out of kindness that's been shown you by God. Some of you uh, will be more gentle. Some of you will start forgiving one another as he forgave you. Some of you will become more joyful, less grumpy, and more generous when you remember first that all of your life, all of your life is meant to remember your creator and to fear him. Ultimately, what what the writer to the Ecclesiastes is saying is if you do these two things, if you remember your creator and fear God in everything, you will be more alive. You will be more alive because you'll be in line with who God has created you to be and how he's created you to live. So in the end, we see that the teacher has been seeking to prepare us for death in order to spur us toward a life of wisdom, even in the midst of a world that is out of our control, so that we can find peace. That's what he's been doing the whole time. He's been reminding of us our de- of our death so we could prepare And the right way to prepare for death is to seek a life of wisdom, even in the midst of a world out of our control. And that's where some of us fall off of that path, is that when things don't make sense to us, we eject and we start living our own life again. We reject the goading of the good shepherd and say, it didn't work last time. I'm going to figure it out on my own this time. But yet the writer of Ecclesiastes says, when you do that, your life will not be controlled by you, you'll lose increasing amounts of control. You think you'll be grasping more control and everything you grab onto to control your life will vaporize in an instant. And ultimately, he wants us to know this, to live a faithful, joyful life and find peace. 
As one commentator put it, for the believer, death and judgment, which we see he ends with in verse 14, are not things to fear. There, are time when the terror, there is a time when the terror of this world will give way to the glory of the new world. As another commentator beautifully put it, no longer will evil be called good and good evil. No longer will darkness be turned into light and light into darkness. No longer will bitter be made sweet and sweet bitter. The conflict between good and evil will come to an end, as will all arguments about motives, intentions, and the nature of good. And in the end, error will be exposed. And here is the greatest error. Real error is turning away from the Lord, our wise shepherd. That is the real error of a foolish life. It was pointed out to me this week that one of the key phrases in Ecclesiastes is gain. So if you remember the subtitle of the series is Ecclesiastes, gift, gain, and life under the sun. So we said that gift is our new motto, right? Life is not about gain. It's about gift. It's not about seizing the day. It's about receiving the day. And yet, is there anything to be gained? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us there is. There is actually one thing to gain. He says in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, Paul knew that in Christ, living and dying were a win-win. We can labor for Christ while we live and we can live with Christ when we die. And that is what there is to be gained. And this is good news, right? At this point, like I was thinking in my sermon prep, why is that good news? It's certainly the church answer. It's certainly the church answer to say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Honestly, uh, well, okay, I'll say it. When I come to Philippians 1, most of the time, I think one of two things. Paul was having a really bad day or he was making the best out of bad circumstances. That's just the way I lean into that passage because it's so hard for me to really believe to live as Christ and to die is gain. So it got me reflecting. Why is this good news? And this is an attempt at why I think it's good news because it tells us that in the worst days of life, there's still great meaning and hope. In the worst days of life, in the worst moments, in the darkest, deepest confusion, there's still meaning and hope. Because when Jesus was in the tomb, the darkest days and lack of hope for the disciples, it was flipped on its head, wasn't it? Because Jesus walked out of that tomb to live as Christ, to die as gain. And in the best days of life, there's a future more glorious than can be imagined. And so every time we try to grab onto something and hold onto it and it vaporizes, even the very best experiences we had, rather than trying to gain it, we can receive it and know that this is meant to be a sign. This good gift is meant to point us to a more rich and full, glorious reality. So we don't have to despair in the darkness or desperately cling to the good. Your death, my death, and the judgment to follow is this great fixed point that's coming in our life. And it's the very thing that can reach back from the future into today and transform the life God has given you to live. It's the only thing that can do that. This reality that a fixed point in your life is coming. And I don't know when, and you don't know when. The worst thing to do would be to hunker down. The worst thing to do would just wait it out. The right thing to do 
the wise thing to do that the shepherd is goading us is live today. Live today. And the only way you'll live today, wisely, is to receive today as a gift and to understand that all points to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now asking that you would show us the areas as we reflect where we're grasping for gain and it's vaporizing and we're freaking out. Show us those areas in our life where we really think that we'll find happiness apart from you, Jesus. And as we reflect, I ask that we would become like you, Jesus, by contemplating you and contemplating your death for us and contemplating the beautiful truth that we don't have to go make a life for ourselves. You've given us a life and we can live it in response to all the good things you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.